Close Source is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing, using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocks sewn and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind. Formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. And Shift Clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that still can't decide if it's better to wear leggings with or without underwear, especially when you're a fan of really huge full coverage briefs. I'm your host, Amanda. Guess what? The Close Horse hotline has been ringing off the hook, which is like my favorite thing ever. Today, we have an important phone call from our friend and previous guest, Meredith with an update about the mall. Let's give it a listen. Hey, Amanda, it's Meredith. Just giving you a call. So excited about this voicemail line. It's awesome. Um, first of all, I got your buttons. Thank you so much. Cannot wait to adorn all of my jackets with these, especially now that we can actually wear jackets here in Southern California. It is cold outside, like actually cold, like like, even though it's the temperature isn't, like, that cold to East Coast people, you know what it's like. Sometimes when it drops below 60 here, it feels like it's 45. Anyways, I have some news for you. I went to a shopping mall on Saturday. Yeah, like a shopping mall, like an indoor shopping mall. I had no idea that these were even open. Um, my sister was in town, and, of course, there's nothing to do. It's quarantine. We went on a hike, and it actually rained on Saturday, so she wanted to go shopping. I thought, okay, well, the Americana is close to me, so that's outdoors. Clearly, it's open. So we drive, but, of course, we park in the Galleria parking lot because it's free, and we noticed that the mall's open. So I said, okay, well, it's about to rain. Maybe let's actually walk through the mall and see what's going on, um, and then we can head over to the Americana. Um, we walked in the mall and it was one of the craziest experiences I've had, but I definitely took it as an opportunity to do some research as to what the hell is going on in the retail market right now. Cause it is crazy. Um, I saw a lot of things. First of all, the mall had way too many people in it. It was really scary. I didn't really feel comfortable in there at all. There was really no capacity maximum for the mall. There were signs on the doors that said that there were capacity restrictions, but 
I don't think anyone was actually counting where they were enforcing capacity was inside the stores themselves. So each store, depending on the size of the store, had a max capacity. And that meant certain stores had really long lines. And it was really interesting to me to see what stores actually had long lines. Um, I worked in a mall many years ago, so I'm very familiar with malls, but I really can't even remember the last time that I was inside of one. I really can't. I don't really shop there. You know, maybe when you have to go to visit the Apple store, I'll walk around and browse and see what's going on. But otherwise, I'm just checking in on businesses on their e-commerce sites and, and Instagram just to see what they're up to. It was really like a shock to see how many stores like that I know from growing up as well as my time working retail are still around and they're still actually kind of relevant. The two stores that had the longest lines were Abercrombie, believe it or not, which is hilarious because my sister still likes them. And in fact, she said something that was really interesting. She said, I have their jeans and I really like them and they're really cheap. Now, there's one thing that I remember from Abercrombie back in the 90s is that it was not cheap at all, like at all. Like you had to have a lot of money to shop there. And I, my sister was in love with the brand, so I remember, like, for Christmas, she would get a shirt or two, and that was it. And it's crazy that I'm sure they've just had to reposition themselves into the fast fashion market to be competitive, and they've probably dropped their prices. Um, so that was really interesting. And the other store that had a really long line was Hot Topic. Like, what? And it was all Gen Z people. Um, I kind of, like, walked past it. It looks exactly like a Hot Topic. I don't think that their assortment as far as like band tees and manic panic have really changed over the years. I'm not totally sure, but that was really surprising to me to see that many kids in line. Also in general, they're, the people at the mall were really young, like they were teenagers. And I didn't even think that they did that stuff anymore. Um, it was either teenagers or families with young kids probably looking for something to do, keep the kids entertained. Once again, it was like really crowded and, and uncomfortable. Um, but I did go into Spencer's, and it was the weirdest <laughs> store. It's basically turned into, like, a sex shop. You can buy all different kinds of vibrators for different body parts, um, lingerie, uh, lots of lewd stuff, like, really lewd. Like, Spencer's always had weird things, but I remember it was, like, the static machine and, like, lava lamps and stuff like that. Maybe a, a candy song. But this was, like, almost a sex store. It was really weird and not what I was expecting at all. So, um, yeah, just that hot take from the mall, just figured I'd share. It was a really interesting experience and everything. Oh, by the way, most stores, their inventory is really odd. Like, it's clear that they did not get fall shipments, which makes me think about the pay-up thing because it didn't seem like there was any fall merchandise. A lot of stores were kind of clearancing their summer, maybe late summer goods, Every store had a sale, and you could tell that they were going to get holiday stuff in, but they didn't have anything in there yet. Um, I talked to the Clark's lady because I like old lady comfortable shoes, and she said that they weren't getting their holiday stuff for another two weeks, that they had stuff shipped in from other stores. So there's definitely a weird cadence as far as merchandise is concerned for your traditional retail. So I think that's all for now. Of course, I have a lot of things to talk to you about, as always, but keep doing what you're doing. Wow. I have so many thoughts here about Meredith's call. Like, I don't even know where to begin. 
I just love talking about the mall. So Southern California malls are like the best malls ever. And the Americana slash Galleria complex that Meredith is talking about is massive. It's located in Glendale, just outside LA. The Galleria is your classic indoor mall, while its neighbor, literally across the street, is the Americana. And it's a huge outdoor mall with like massive stores, a lake that literally puts on a musical water show every hour. It's a little heavy on the Sinatra for my taste, but quite a spectacle nonetheless. Lots of nice restaurants, a little trolley that moves shoppers from one end to the other, a movie theater, really, really nice bathrooms that, if I recall correctly, have actual fabric hand towels. And one of my favorite restaurants, Din Tai Fung, has a massive outpost there. Like someday when all of this is over and you get to go to a Din Tai Fung, please go. If you have the opportunity, you must take it. You can't just dip by the Americana for a quick errand because it turns into an all-day thing. Like, there's way too much stuff to do there, and a parking alone is a whole project. But this is, like, such a California mall. And I grew up loving the mall, I mean, my entire life since I was a little kid. When I lived in Chicago, I would take two buses to this, like, corner edge of the city where there was a very small indoor mall just so I could go be in a mall. My love for malls grew even bigger when I was living in LA. My most favorite mall is actually out in Arcadia in the San Gabriel Valley. Shout out to the Westfield Santa Anita, which has tons of stores from Japan and Korea, tons of cute kawaii stuff, along with lots of amazing Asian food from all of the best restaurants in the San Gabriel Valley. And if you're not sold already, it's near the Los Angeles Arboretum. So sometimes there are just peacocks just chilling around the edges of the parking lot and driveways. I mean, talking about this is making me so homesick for the mall, LA, my friends, life before COVID, like, ah, makes my heart hurt a little bit. After listening to Meredith's message, I racked my brain to figure out the last time I was in a mall. And I'm pretty sure, I mean, this took a lot of thinking, that it was in January at the Cherry Hill Mall in New Jersey, which is just over the bridge from Philly. Basically, we, and I'm by we, I mean I, had inadvertently broken our Chemex coffee maker that morning, which was like a 911 situation. So I had to go to the Williams-Sonoma in that mall. It was the only Chemex in stock anywhere around Philly. And... The whole experience was just really weird slash disappointing. Like I got my Chemex, great, crisis averted, but all the stores were still doing holiday winter clearance sales and there was nothing cute to buy. And just in general, I felt really disconnected from all the brands and their offering and it was just boring. It's interesting for me now to think of that as my last trip to the mall probably for quite a while And for me to realize how disinterested and completely turned off by that whole industry I was, it's kind of like setting the tone for what 2020 has become for me. Meredith makes a really good point about Abercrombie and Fitch going cheap to keep up with fast fashion. We talk about this all the time, how fast fashion has turned every retailer into fast fashion. But I was shocked by her message. Like, 
Abercrombie and Fitch being cheap, but then I looked at their website and jeans really are $78 at full price. And basically everything on the site is permanently marked down. After doing some research, I found out that Abercrombie has been lowering its prices since about 2015 when it saw a huge slump in sales. Furthermore, this is very interesting to me and maybe ironic. They're trying to emulate American Eagle by featuring models of different sizes, which that's the ironic part of it, right? Because for years, that company was infamous for how fat phobic, racist, just really antiquated, white biased beauty standards for store employees and like crazy rules around grooming and appearance. It's interesting now that they're like, oh no, now we're into body positivity and size inclusivity. And it's super ironic to me that they are trying to emulate American Eagle because I always thought of American Eagle as the poor man's Abercrombie, but still kind of expensive, definitely out of reach for me for quite a while. And as Meredith pointed out via a follow-up text with me, Aeropostal was like the poor man's American Eagle and Heritage 1981, which was a Forever 21 brand, holler if you remember that one, that was the poor man's Aeropostal, except everything from all of these brands was pretty much the same quality, possibly made in the same factory, probably the same fabrics, just all sold at a different retail price. Also, all catering towards this one concept of style that existed and that like years before and just after 2010. I thought that was fascinating, like this weird sort of, I don't know if I'd call it preppy, but you know, when you see Abercrombie, you know it. These brands were all playing in that pool, just at different price points. I kind of love remembering all these things. <laughs> Hot Topic, moving on, has been practically printing its own money for the past few years because they've subtly shifted away from their like goth, punk, emo roots, and now they focus more on licensed products. So if there's a character, a game, a show, a movie, even a retro toy that you love, then they probably have a line of product for you. From Harry Potter to Pusheen to Dragon Ball Z... I mean, they have so much Rick and Morty stuff. It's practically a Rick and Morty store. And they also sell tons of those like blind boxes. I read an interesting article in the New York Times about this new strategy and how it's paid off for them. Like, yes, Hot Topic is now like an institution of the mall. And we've even reached a point where multiple generations of, of Americans think of it that way. So it already kind of has that going for it. Like people are going to come in and check it out anyway. But now they offer product for just about everyone of all ages. And this is a true story. They turned up the lights to be brighter in the store. So it's a little less goth, I guess. So now the whole family shops there. You know, I grew up in a place that's way too rural to support a Hot Topic, so I didn't experience it until I was an adult, so I don't have the same kind of memories and attachment to it that others might. So maybe I wouldn't like this shift in product and mood if it was a part of my teenage years, but since I'm just a person who works in business or did work in business, I think it's really smart of them. And you know, 
Dustin and I always like to pop in there when we're in a mall, which just saying that seems like such a time capsule of another time when I can't even imagine when I'll go to a mall again. I guess to be honest, I thought all the malls were closed. I'm grateful that Meredith went and reported back. Also, she mentioned Spencer's and spoiler here, we're thinking about doing an episode about the super strangely iconic or at least long lasting mall store because it's another store that like now generations of people have weird stories about. (laughs) So stay tuned for that. And lastly, to touch on Meredith's call out about stores not having any false shipments or holiday stuff and the late summer stuff still being in the stores on sale. I mean, that feels so crazy to me because for one, fall product usually hits the stores in July. Like maybe even June in some locations. And summer stuff has to be cleared out in August. Whatever's left at that point when September rolls around is going to get marked down really hard or just kind of hidden in the corners. And holiday stuff would already be in the store in October. So now we're in November. We're just a few weeks away from Black Friday. No holiday stuff out yet? I mean, to me... This is obvious that retailers are struggling to figure out what to do. And I will say that I've talked to a few friends who still work in the industry because most of us with a lot of experience have been laid off. And I'm hearing that most brands and retailers are placing orders about, are you ready for this? Four to six weeks out. We're talking four to six weeks to make the fabric, make the trims, sew the garments, pack them up, and ship them to the United States. So fashion is faster than ever. And this means that everything shipping via air, which you know is so, so bad for climate change, these clothes are being fit maybe once, meaning like there's one sample that they fit in a model and send the notes, and that might not even be happening because four to six weeks is a really tight turnaround. And it's being sewn as fast as possible. So the quality is not going to be that great, right? You know, retailers and brands might even be using available fabrics, which we talked about pretty early on in Close Horse with my friend Amy, who said that like some factories have started to just strictly run businesses that are chased like this. Chase is what we call when we write an order with a really fast turnaround. And these chase fabrics are always cheaper The quality is not there. The color is never going to be ideal. They're not built to last. It's about creating product as fast as possible to get into stores. So it's kind of the least desirable stuff that you could make. And I don't know if you've noticed, but it just seems like all anyone's selling still is sweatsuits and comfy cardigans. And I worry, not in a real way, like I'm losing sleep over it, but just, I don't know, feeling concerned for the retailers that they're shooting themselves in the foot by playing it too safe with sweatsuits and loungewear. Because I think everyone is generally getting over that. And you can holler at me if I'm wrong. I see friends and acquaintances all over Instagram wearing actual clothes, like jumpsuits, blouses, dresses, and 
I've heard from my friend Ty that boots are on fire. So I think more and more people want to look cute again. I know I do. So I think retailers are backing up the wrong tree right now and they're making a huge mistake by just continuing to offer sweatpants. That said, I don't want us to be drowning with even more super cheap, because obviously we're talking about this being the super cheapest, fastest, least nice product that we could buy. We don't need more of that. So I'm kind of glad that retailers are dismissing the boat because hopefully no one will buy any of the stuff that they're making right now and then they won't make more. Maybe wishful thinking here. Anyway, thank you so much, Meredith, for filling us in on what's going on out there. If you, yes, you listeners who aren't Meredith, have a dispatch from the mall or something else on your mind that you want to share, please call the Close Horse Hotline. It's really just a voicemail, so don't worry. You're not going to have to actually speak to me. The number is 717-925-7417. So call me. Please note that there is like a cutoff after about two minutes. So you may just have to call back, which Meredith did. I just spliced it all together. The magic of technology. (laughs) Please don't forget to have a callback number or an email address just so I can ask your permission to share it or ask you follow-up questions or, you know, answer your question. I would also love to hear your personal stories about HOMAC and Bath and Body Works and what you saw at the mall or how you feel about sweatpants. So call me. And speaking of HOMAC, I mean, I did just mention it, right? <laughs> we were kind of speaking of it. I have a reader letter. Well, it's an email, but let's just say letter because I love an actual paper letter and it sounds so much cozier. This letter is from Helen, one of our international listeners from the UK. Hi, Amanda. I just wanted to write to you about Monday's episode because it literally spoke to me so much. I quit the footwear industry just under a year ago to become a teacher, basically for many of the reasons you discuss on your pod. Hearing what Mary was saying slash doing inspired me so much and honestly made me feel like what I'm doing now is so worth it. Here in the UK, we call HOMAC design and technology. It's split into textiles, product design, which covers woodwork, plastics, metal electronics, and food preparation and nutrition. In theory, this is great because we teach kids how to make things using all these materials, and we also teach them the science behind it. But unfortunately, in practice, it is less great. The subject has become undervalued because the government has spent years pushing, quote, academic subjects. Often the kids in there have been pushed into it because they weren't going to do well in other subjects, which is, all caps, so wrong. In some ways, what's happening here sounds similar to the U.S., Schools have targets to meet and everything becomes all about the academic exam results rather than learning any kind of life skills or creativity. Our current chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is basically cutting funds for art slash design subjects. And recently the government released the most ridic ad campaign telling people not to work in arts. There was an outcry on social media and it got dropped. And side note here from me, Amanda, I looked at this campaign and it was basically like, hey, are you a ballerina? why don't you try doing something more technical? (laughs) I will definitely share a link to this in our Facebook group. Spoiler, I'm going to talk about a Facebook group in a few. Anyway, 
D&T sadly is in decline as the government made it non-compulsory and loads of good teachers are leaving the profession, both underpaid and overworked. All of this means that pupils are less excited about the subject so they don't select it when they get to choose their options and the cycle continues. But I love teaching textiles so I feel like I can't let it pull me off and I would die happy if I contributed to it becoming popular in schools again. This turned out to be a really long email. I... Hope it is in some way interesting. It definitely is, Helen. I really love the podcast, by the way. I even include stuff I've learned from it in my textiles classes. Best wishes, Helen. Well, I was so excited to hear from Helen. It makes me so sad to hear that even this more trade-driven version of home economics is completely devalued as women's work. And I hate even more that kids are sort of being shuffled into it because they aren't succeeding in other areas. Because... I know I'm preaching to the choir here, sewing, weaving, cooking, design. These are all highly specialized crafts and they require so much practice and study and talent to succeed. So you can thank toxic masculinity for devaluing a whole huge area of actual art. I suggested to Helen that Boris Johnson should be forced to sew a pair of pants on live television. Now I would pay to watch that. Thank you so much for writing, Helen. Listener mail is the best thing ever. I would love to hear everyone else's stories regarding home ec, learning to sew, wishing they could sew, maybe some zany sewing misadventures. You can call the Clothes Horse Hotline, as we just discussed, or send an email to clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. Or if you love snail mail, which I do, and to be honest, I'm not mad that people call it snail mail because, you know... Snails are pretty cute. (laughs) Anyway, you can send an actual letter or postcard to the official Clothes Horse P.O. Box. The address is P.O. Box 55, Whitmer, Pennsylvania, 17585. And I'll include that in the show notes for posterity. Next, you know I've been talking about starting an online group for all the rad Clothes Horse listeners I've been meeting on social media. Well, after talking to some of you, I decided to opt for Facebook. The group is called Clothes Horsing Around. That's the best I could do. Sorry. (laughs) There are a couple of very easy questions to answer just to screen out trolls because I actually had to block our first ever Clothes Horse Instagram troll last week. It was one of those. It was so cliche. It was one of those accounts that has zero posts and it was there to fight with me about cultural appropriation and nonsense about the repression of white people. So... I tried to talk to them, I gave up, I blocked them. I guess it's an honor when you start getting trolls, right? Well, anyway, I didn't want them in our Facebook group because this is just for people who are nice. So the questions are designed to keep them out. There will be a link in the show notes to our Facebook group, but the URL is www.facebook.com slash groups slash clothes horsing around. And once again, the link will be in the show notes. Join the Facebook group, okay? I'm going to be sharing articles and other information that doesn't translate well to podcasting because, you know, it's like pictures. (laughs) So you'll definitely want to see some of this, I think, especially for today's episode and the stuff coming along with it. Also, we got to talk about Patreon, right? Well, Clothes Horse has a new patron and it's Mary, the guest on our last episode. Okay, actually, she was already a patron then. But it felt weird to be like, thanks for being a patron, Mary. Now here's the interview with Mary. So 
I decided to hold it till this episode so we could talk about Mary again. I know that so many of you loved Mary's ideas and opinions on sewing. I've been hearing so much positive feedback from all of you about that episode. So I know you understand that I feel very honored to have her as a patron. So thank you so much, Mary. I've been sending out all the patron swag over the last week, so I'm starting to see photos of our pins and stickers all out in the world. If you're a patron, please share photos of yourself with our pins. I just get excited to see them. It's really just for me. (laughs) And if you haven't become a patron yet, you can learn more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. And I'll link that in the show notes. As always, your support helps me keep the podcast going and maybe eventually will pay for some of my work. So your support matters so much to me. Every dollar makes a huge impact on me personally. If you're not down with Patreon or you just don't have the cash, hey, that's okay too. That's been me most of my life. I'm just so honored to have you here as a listener. So keep up the good work of listening, okay? Without you, I have nothing. (laughs) I guess I'm just a woman yelling in a microphone in a room in a house where cats are constantly wrestling. Okay, that was a long introduction. So let's get into today's episode, which... I'm calling a mini-sode because it's just me. That's kind of what I've decided is the rule. But what does mini-sode even mean? (laughs) All right, let's get down to it. What's your car worth? Okay, maybe that's not the best starter. How about, do you have a car? And if you do, how much is it worth? Like, what's the official blue book value here? $10,000, $20,000. What if I told you there's a man that owns a car valued at $700,000? And what if I told you that the same man also had a car worth $2 million? You'd probably think I was talking about Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, right? Well, it's actually someone else. His name is Mark Stidham. And these crazy expensive cars are Koenigseggs. Koenigseggs. (laughs) Just singing again. It's a super futuristic, super fast, and super luxurious car made in Sweden. I'll share a photo on social media this week so you can see these cars. And Mark Stidham is a huge name in the world of Koenigseggs collecting and racing. I feel like every day I learn about some new thing in the world that people are passionate about, and this is today's. He bought his first Koenigsegg in 2017, and he affectionately calls her Ruthie. By the way, Ruthie is the cheaper car, the one that's only worth $700,000. And poor cheap Ruthie has broken some crazy land speed records. I want to say five records in total. And like I said, that's the cheap car. It's estimated that Mark Stidham has $5 million in rare and high-end sports cars, including a $200,000 McLaren. So where does he get the money to spend $5 million on cars? Well, 
Would you be shocked to hear that he's made this kind of money by selling millions of $25 leggings? $25 printed leggings? Because Mark Stidham is a co-founder of LuLaRoe, the multi-level marketing company that generated $2.3 billion in sales in 2017, a revenue that was in line with J.Crew's sales that year. J.Crew, okay? $25 leggings. I'm sure some of you are breathing a sigh of relief right now that this isn't an episode of Car Talk, as am I. Nope, it's still close horse, and we're about to dig into a crazy legging situation. Now, some of you might be unfamiliar with this brand, but if you're an avid thrifter like me, you've seen LuLaRoe leggings and now dresses start to just like clog the racks at just about every thrift store. Like everywhere I go, there's a whole rack of these leggings. They're printed, usually in bright, wild, sometimes surprising patterns. That's me being very diplomatic here. And well, like I said, they're leggings. And the dresses are made of the same printed fabric. When I think about the environmental impact of LuLaRoe, all those leggings and dresses, they contain spandex, which is plastic and therefore not biodegradable. I get so sad. And also we'll talk about this later, these garments are straight up fast fashion. Cheap, low quality, sometimes even ill-fitting, occasionally moldy. Don't worry, we're going to get to all of that. LuLaRoe is such a huge story. Like there's no way I'll be able to talk about everything, but I want to try to paint a full picture. So this episode is part one of two. I didn't intend it that way, but it was like the more articles I found about this company, the more it led me to even more articles. <laughs> There's just so much to unpack here. So where do we begin? Let's start with a brief introduction to the cast of characters here. So you've already met Mark Stidham. He founded LuLaRoe in 2012, some people say 2013, in Corona, California with his wife, Deanne Brady. To realize that this company has been around for only eight years, or maybe even only seven years, but it's still already clogging up all the thrift stores, I mean, that gives you the idea of how much of this product was churned out. So LuLaRoe is a multi-level marketing company, also known as an MLM, which I will unpack a little bit more later in the episode, because like all things we talk about here, it's complicated. Basically, the company recruits independent distributors, which LuLaRoe calls, in quotes, fashion consultants, to sell products directly, often through social media. If you've encountered LuLaRoe, it's probably been on Facebook. The company reported sales of approximately $1 billion in 2016, which made it one of the largest firms in the multi-level marketing industry at the time. And by 2017, the year that they generated as much revenue as J. Crew, there were approximately, okay, well, this is a large range here, so get ready, 80,000 to 150,000 consultants selling their product. I gave a range there, a really big range, because LuLaRoe has been incredibly opaque about just how many people are slinging their leggings. 
And as the story unfolds, you'll understand why. Now, I'm almost annoyed with myself that I started this story about Mark because other than the fact that he likes to spend money, collect stupidly expensive cars, and occasionally say some really ill-advised stuff very publicly and really, really loudly, his wife Deanne is the really interesting story here. So let's start with her. If you visit the LuLaRoe website and click on the headline, Our Story, you'll be greeted by a banner proclaiming, this is a story of a struggling mother who has and continues to inspire thousands while following her dreams. And that struggling mother is Deanne Brady. LuLaRoe remains a family-run business, employing many members of the family. And the brand itself is named after her first three grandchildren, Lucy, Lola, and Monroe. The thing is, this family vibe appeals to potential fashion consultants because they're sold this opportunity to own their own business, spend time with their children, set their own hours, and work for themselves. I mean, it sounds pretty appealing, right? Maybe working at home sounds a lot less appealing now in 2020, but for many mothers pre-COVID, this was an amazing dream. And LuLaRoe offered them this chance to have it all, to live this dream. After all, isn't Deanne Brady living proof that this can happen? I mean, she's running the company. She's got kids, you know? The LuLaRoe website will tell you that Deanne was born to be an entrepreneur. She and her twin sister, Diane, yes, that's right, it's Deanne and Diane, were the youngest of 11 children. Her parents, Albert and Maureen Startup, yes, their last name really was and is Startup, were active members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, meaning they were Mormon, and they met at Brigham Young University in 1935. They settled in Pasadena, California, not too far from my favorite mall in Santa Anita. Now, the startups were practically Mormon royalty because Elbert was the great-grandson of Hiram Smith, who's the older brother of the church's founder and prophet, Joseph Smith. Like, this is a really big deal. And Elbert was the direct descendant of the founder of Startup Candy Company, which was the first factory in the United States to sell the first filled candy bar. And this candy bar, the Opera Bar, had three layers of cream filling in chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry, and it sold for 10 cents. I mean, sounds pretty good to me, but I also have some raging PMS right now, so I may not be the best person to ask about the appeal of candy. The factory is still family operated in Utah, and they have a website. You can check it out. They have some really lovely photos of lollipops on their website. <laughs> like, I don't talk about lollipop photography very often, but I thought these were exceptionally good. <laughs> so, Albert and Marine, they had 11 kids. They had a large family to support. Albert helped out with the family candy business, and Maureen opened a bridal shop. They also ran a catering business, and the kids helped out with it. Somehow, Maureen also had time to teach Deanne how to sew. And once again, there were 11 kids in that house. So there was always, I can assume, a ton of stuff to do and manage. I mean, I can't even imagine, like, all the laundry, cooking, cleaning, Legos to step on. I don't know how some of you managed to care for two kids, much less 11, right? Like, wow. <laughs> but somehow... The startups, they had all these jobs, all these businesses, all these kids. 
they also made time for a very interesting side hustle. Maybe you'd call it a passion project. You decide. In 1945, the startups founded the American Family and Femininity Institute. I have a really hard time saying that femininity word. This sounds like bad news though, right? Like you're already like, this seems a little family values-ish. Well, your sense of bad things to come is on point because this organization was devoted to teaching women that their place was in the home. In 1969, the couple published a book called The Secret Power of Femininity, The Art of Attracting, Winning, and Keeping the Right Man for You. (laughs) Wow. Cool. I managed to track down a 1972 New York Times article about the couple and their mission. And wow, I'm just so grateful for the decades upon decades of content that the New York Times has saved because... It was amazing. (laughs) This article starts with an excerpt from the book. I'm going to try my hardest to read it aloud without laughing or barfing. So here goes. Stand before a mirror in the privacy of your room and say to yourself, I am just a helpless woman at the mercy of you big, strong men. Stand before the mirror and say to yourself, I expect you to pamper and humor me. With this thought in mind, try a pretty pout. Stick out your lower lip as much as to say, I thought you liked me. Or stamp your feet daintily, saucily, and shake your curls as much as to say, I am furious, but what can a little girl like me do with a big, strong man like you? And after perfecting this before the mirror, practice this exercise upon men you meet. Okay, can I say that this book is 318 pages long? Imagine 300 pages of this nonsense. The book also gives this advice to young women. You must drop every suggestion in speech, apparel, and manner that you are able to kill your own snakes or take care of your own affairs or to spurn the guidance and care of men. The core belief of this book, and I suppose the entire institute, is essentially these women libbers are ruining everything. Or, in their words, the air of being able to kill their own snakes is just what destroys the charm of so many school teachers and competent business career and professional women. As you know, I'm a women's libber myself, a career woman. Hell, I mean, I've only been married for a few years. One time my friend Sherry and I encountered a rattlesnake on an astronomy hike in Malibu, and we just ran away from it, screaming a little, yes, but we didn't need a man to step in to kill it for us. In fact, no snakes were harmed that day, so maybe feminism isn't so bad. (laughs) Also, they're really hung up on this idea of killing snakes. It comes up constantly in this book. Well, Startups weren't just on a moral mission. They were also entrepreneurs. You got to remember that. So they started hosting these femininity forums all around LA. Young women would pay $300 for 12 three-hour sessions, which was the equivalent of $1,800 in 2020. Here's the kind of hot tip you might receive as one of these students. Another device is to become so interested in what you're saying or in what is happening that you put your arm ever so lightly upon the man's coat sleeve and then when you see that he's noticed it, 
to draw your hand away with an air of confusion and self-conscious modesty. This serves to bring out the confiding trustfulness of your nature and then to emphasize your timorousness. By the way, timorousness is synonymous with being timid. It probably doesn't surprise you to hear this, but Maureen was also an opponent of the Equal Rights Amendment, and she joined Phyllis Schlafly's Stop ERA organization, and she became the chairwoman of the California branch. I'd also like to add that the ERA was never ratified because of women like this. And if you haven't watched Mrs. America yet, you should, because it explains a lot of the behind the scenes on both sides of this controversial amendment, which, by the way, just gave women equal rights to men, like nothing crazy. Also, Hillary Clinton has a new podcast, and in one episode, she interviewed Gloria Steinem, and they snarked so hard on Phyllis Schlafly. Well, maybe it's only juicy and exciting if you're a bra burner like me, but I highly recommend checking it out, and I'll link that in the show notes for you. Okay, so we talked about the ERA. We talked about the parents here. Now, I know that sometimes what your parents do or say can be totally different than your own beliefs. I get that. But I do have to say that while Deanne preaches a lot of female empowerment via LuLaRoe, her beliefs might not always be so feminist. So are you ready for a crazy story? (laughs) It's already been pretty crazy, I think. In 2018, Bloomberg News reported that Deanne and her sister, Lene, encouraged LuLaRoe leaders to travel to Tijuana to get fitted with a gastric sleeve, which is bariatric surgery. It's weight loss surgery. According to one consultant who has since left the company, quote, I was told by Deanne herself that she likes her leaders to be a size small or medium. I mean, this reminds me of places I've worked. (laughs) At least four other consultants were approached by Deanne or Lene about the opportunity to go to Tijuana for this surgery. Uh, Sam Schultz, who's Deanne and Lene's nephew, explained it in more depth. Lene charges $5,000 but it only costs $4,000. So you pay her through PayPal, she gets a cut, then she takes you to Mexico. Another consultant said, the sisters refer to themselves as the Tijuana skinnies. Oh. So a gastric sleeve surgery for $5,000 is a red flag, right? And we all can agree that no one should be getting all cap surgery so they can sell more leggings, right? We're all on the same page there. But if you're still like, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea, may I tell you the name of this esteemed medical facility that is performing bargain basement bariatric surgery? It's called Obesity Not For Me. And yes, that's the number four, not the word F-O-R. Obesity Not For Me. A fine medical facility. I want you to keep all this feminism and female empowerment stuff in mind as we continue on this LuLaRoe journey. It's going to come back into play. So Deanne grew up, she studied fashion merchandising at BYU, and she got married to her first husband, I'm not making this up, on the same day that her twin sister Diane married the cousin of Deanne's groom. (laughs) Can you follow that? 
I rewrote this like 10 times trying to make it make sense. Anyway, the most important thing is they got married on the same day to two guys who were related. How about we summarize it that way? Deanne went on to have four children with her first husband, and then she adopted at least three children from Romania after that. So seven kids. Somewhere along the line, and it doesn't seem like a lot of people really know the details here or they haven't taken the time to dig into the public records, but she divorced her first husband and married Mark Stidham. He's the one with the $5 million worth of sports cars. And I'm just going to add this here. I know it's a really big deal to get divorced in the Mormon faith. So I have so many questions about what happened there. But so she's moved on. She's married to Mark. They're still married today. In the early 90s, Deanne began to sell clothing. She frequently retells this anecdote. So this is in her words. Many years ago, when my children were younger, I found a man that had set up a garment market at fairs and swap meets. He was selling overstock items from big name brands at a discount. I convinced him to provide me with some stock for in-home dress parties that I could throw for my friends and family. And I sold more than 300 pieces. Because he didn't want to be in the business of selling dresses in homes, we came to an agreement where I could buy wholesale. And that's how I made the business work for my family for many years. I needed the freedom to be an independent stay-at-home mom, and I created the path to make it happen. That number, 300 pieces, is also important to remember because it's strangely an important part of the LuLaRoe framework, so keep that in mind too. As far as I can tell, she did this alongside her twin sister, Diane, and Public records also show that they tried to open a nail salon together in 1992, but they've never mentioned it. Once again, Deanne doesn't ever talk about Diane working with her, but there's a social media and witness trail that says that they continued to throw these clothing parties for about 20 years, and she actually claims 27 years. And it's hard to say really specifically for sure what happened at all, because Reporters have tried to dig into Diane and Mark's financial records, and it's confusing to say the least. A 2010 state document indicates that Diane worked as a secretary for Mark's company, which was called Advanced Concrete Structures, whatever that means. And a 2006 record lists Diane as a debtor, meaning owing money to New Skin, which is an MLM that has run into its own legal problems for scamming customers and sellers. And I want to say again, even though there's a social media trail and stories from friends and customers that indicate that Deanne was always working with Diane to hold these dress parties, she's never mentioned in any of Deanne's official accounts, and I don't know why. Her version of how LuLaRoe started is that her daughter asked her to make a maxi skirt for her. After she made it, her daughter posted it on Instagram, everyone went wild, and LuLaRoe was born. Documents filed with the state of California show that LuLaRoe LLC, with Mark Stidham as its registered agent, was incorporated on January 25th, 2013. In the beginning, consultants will tell you that Deanne was super involved. She gave out her personal phone number, she coached consultants on both leggings and personal problems, and she was just super supportive and positive. One employee tells this story. I'm in Chanel head to toe. I'm walking in the hallway and she literally turns around and says, um, that's not LuLaRoe. I said, of course not. It's Chanel. And she immediately walked me to the warehouse, pulled some items for me, and I put them on that day. Well, despite all that niceness, she was still scary as hell. 
Deanne didn't like to encounter messy desks, snacks, or any expressions of what she considered, quote, negative emotions. So the team was always on the lookout for her Mercedes with the LuLaRoe vanity plate, and then they would run and scramble and try to clean everything up. And over time, she was just around less. It reached a point where she didn't want to interact with the team at all, and she went from being a woman who literally carried a $20 purse, there's so many stories about this, her and her $20 purse, to bragging that she had three rooms of luxury clothing that she had only worn one time. And there was so much conspicuous consumption. Lavish trips, Mark's crazy sports cars, a private jet that cost about $20 million, and a $9 million ranch in Wyoming. And then came the lawsuits. We'll talk about that more on the second episode because it's quite a web to entangle. I made a list of the things I wanted to go over in this episode versus the next one, and so I only have one more thing left on my list. And that's to explain what an MLM is. Multi-level marketing, also known as MLM, is a strategy that some direct sales companies use to encourage existing distributors, in LuLaRoe's case, we're talking about these fashion consultants, to recruit new distributors or more fashion consultants. And then the person who does the recruiting receives a percentage of their recruits' sales. These recruits are what are called the distributor's downline. And then distributors will make income from two different sources. One, directly selling to customers themselves, and two, this percentage of what their recruits sell. This is very similar to a pyramid scheme, which is probably another term you've heard. In fact, the only thing that really distinguishes an MLM from a pyramid scheme is that there's actual product involved, but the structure is the same. The people at the top, picture a pyramid here, the people at the top make the most money because they're collecting from everyone below them. The people on the bottom, like at the very bottom, they lose out because they don't have anyone to collect from. So their only income is from selling directly to customers because you only make more money by recruiting more people to work beneath you. I hope that makes sense. It would be a lot easier for me to explain if I had a dry erase board and you were sitting here with me. I'm just trying to do it with words. Pyramid schemes are illegal because, well, they're just straight up fraud, right? And that's because nothing is actually being sold except for scams. They're often referred to as opportunities. But MLMs are legal at the same time. I mean, we've talked about this a lot before. Just because something's legal doesn't mean it's ethical or right, right? So MLMs are also incredibly predatory, which we'll talk about more on the next episode, but we're going to get into it a little bit here. A pyramid scheme can also be called a Ponzi scheme. And I'm sure you've heard that term out there in the ether as well. In a strange, like, I can't make this shit up turn of events, Joseph Smith, who was a distant relative of Deanne on her father's side and the prophet of the Mormon church, well, he was involved in one of the very first Ponzi schemes. The Kirtland Safety Society was founded in 1837 by Joseph Smith, and it has hallmarks of a Ponzi scheme, according to Utah attorney Mark Pugsley, who specializes in fraud cases. It was initially supposed to be a bank for LDS church members, but 
it eventually collapsed due to insufficient funds, meaning not enough actual money in the bank to give people their money back, which is exactly what you don't want to hear from your bank. (laughs) And there were a lot of accusations of fraud and mismanagement that led to this insufficient funds. And Smith and his associates faced 17 lawsuits. So, okay, let's keep talking about pyramid schemes and MLMs because I know you've heard them used interchangeably. Let's break it down a little bit more. Both promise big profits if an individual pays up and starts selling, right? Even in the pyramid scheme, you're not actually selling a physical product, but if you get more people to come in and pay for this nebulous opportunity, then you get a share of what what they just paid in. And if you're selling a product, you're going to get a portion of what the person beneath you is selling, right? Both require upfront money, usually in the form of joining fees, inventory fees, other upfront costs. And there's no guarantee that you'll earn the money back. It's often sold as like an investment opportunity, we know that investment doesn't always pay off. Both usually ask for money as soon as you think about joining in the form of cash, wire transfer, money order, some sort of online payment, and that's just to join this company. Both also offer ample hidden confusing fees to either join up or keep selling for the company. I'm gonna say this again. While MLMs and pyramid schemes are virtually identical, MLMs are perfectly legal because they sell actual product. And we can thank the biggest MLM in the world for that, Amway. Amway has more than $9 billion in revenue each year. The FTC decided in a landmark, I mean, this set the tone for all the MLMs of the future, this landmark 1979 ruling, that the company was legit because it was selling actual products. Like that's where that sort of line in the sand was drawn between MLM and pyramid scheme. As the FTC argued, the home health and beauty products that the company sells are real. And so they weren't a pyramid scheme. But in 2010, the company paid $56 million to settle a class action lawsuit that once again accused it of being a pyramid scheme. It's all very murky. Like, yes, MLMs are legal, but then again, they aren't always. Based on my research, it seems as if MLMs are very carefully skirting the line between an illegal pyramid scheme and a legal but ethically ambiguous MLM. The Federal Trade Commission points out two telltale signs that a product is being used to hide a true pyramid scheme. One of those things is inventory loading, which requires sellers to purchase more inventory than they could realistically sell, and often at an inflated price. And the second clue here is a lack of retail sales, meaning that products are sold to existing and new recruits within the pyramid rather than external customers. These two points are really important to remember as we go on this LuLaRoe journey, so I'm going to say them again. Inventory loading, as in requiring or at least intensely pressuring sellers to have more inventory than they could ever realistically sell, and a lack of retail sales because more products are being sold to new recruits than actual customers. 
probably because the market is too saturated. As in, there are too many recruits out there already trying to sell this product. MLMs are big business. According to the Direct Selling Association, a lobbying group for MLMs, the industry produced $35.4 billion in retail sales in 2018. And there are so many multi-level marketing companies. You're seeing them on your social media feeds. There's Sensi, doTERRA, even Avon. Tupperware has been around forever, and it's the oldest MLM. But even there, sellers have faced great financial repercussions because they are required to buy a certain amount of samples every month, and the discounts that they receive on the product itself that they resell is taxable. So many sellers have walked away with tremendous debt and crazy bad tax situations. So one of the things I noticed when I started to dig into these LuLaRoe articles and blogs is that there's always that one woman who made $80,000 a year selling leggings. Maybe it's a bunch of different women, but I feel like that $80,000 is always the number. So I was wondering, do MLM sellers make a lot of money? I mean, someone must be, right? Because that's the lure. Making a real income while working at home, naming your hours, and being your boss? Well, Surveys revealed that 25% of participants made money from multi-level marketing. And by the way, this data is coming from a survey done by AARP. <laughs> okay, so 25% of people made money. Of this, 14% make less than $5,000 in a year. 6% make between $5,000 and $10,000. 3% make between $10,000 and $24,000, 3% make more than $25,000, and only half a percentage point make $100,000 or above. So as you can see, the number of people who are making a lot of money declines as the dollar amount gets higher in the shape of a pyramid. <laughs> okay. Only 10% of all people who are selling for an MLM, manage to make over $100 in a week. I mean, they're doing way more than $100 a week in work. They're hustling all the time. Talk about not paying yourself a living wage. So let's talk about how an MLM functions in terms of LuLaRoe. Okay, so let's picture that pyramid. Mark and Deanna are at the top, hence all that money to buy million-dollar cars. Well, Fashion consultants, the downline, have to sink in a pretty substantial amount of money just to get started. The cost to purchase the LuLaRoe startup kit is approximately five to $6,000. The initial inventory will cost about $4,900, but you also need hangers, business cards, clothing racks, shelves, a photo studio setup. I've read about women taking out $1,000 worth of Facebook ads to sell their stuff. I mean, there's a lot of money being spent here. Now, according to some experts, this startup inventory, if it all sells at full price, has $12,000 in retail value. Meaning, if you sold all of that, you could walk away with about seven dollars or $8,000. But, once again, that's only if it sells at full price and 
it's about 375 pairs of leggings, okay? <laughs> Furthermore, fashion consultants don't get to pick out what they're sent. The prints are random and some, in fact, many might be a dud. And this is important. There are a lot of memes out there poking fun at this surprise element of the business. Sellers don't know what they will receive until they get it and they can't really return it. So like, that's it. They open the box and it's all new to them. They also have no control over the sizes they receive. So it can be challenging to service their customers. Like if they're starting to build up a customer base, there are also tons of memes about customers trying to find their size in their quote, unicorn print, which is not an actual print showing images of unicorns, but the print that they have been trying to find for a long time. And at least one customer has been known to fake their own death to finally obtain their own print. Yes, that's a true story. And I'll tell you more about it in the next episode when we talk about the culture of LuLaRoe. This idea of unicorn prints actually drives up the retail price on some prints, which can be great for a struggling seller. But remember, other prints don't sell at all. And fashion consultants need to be continuously buying inventory, which has led to all kinds of terrible credit card debt. It should be unrisky debt because any reputable MLM will buy back unsold stock, usually around 80 to 85% of that. But there have been a lot of reports about LuLaRoe not doing that. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the lawsuits because there are so many lawsuits (laughs) And you know what? Before I continue, I think it's really important that you watch an episode of King of the Hill in which Peggy gets sucked into an MLM called Cozy Kitchen. The episode is called Peggy's Gone to Pots and it's in season 11. And I think this is my assigned viewing for you for the next episode because yes, it's satire, but it's not that far from the truth. So please, please watch that. Okay, so back to LuLaRoe. Ultimately, The best way to have a guaranteed income is to establish a downline, meaning get people to sell for you. Obviously, LuLaRoe encourages this. To be successful, you have to have those two streams of revenue, selling directly yourself and having people sell for you. And having people sell for you is always going to bring in way more income than selling yourself. But this can get complicated, right? Because You want to meet people who have separate friend groups because, as I've mentioned, most of this is going to be sold on social media. And if people share friends, then they're going to cannibalize one another's sales. So there's a ceiling on your downline. You don't want to be good friends with anyone who you're going to recruit, right? If too many people in one area or one group of friends start selling, then no one is successful, Put a pin in that idea for the next episode too. So three quarters of direct sellers happen to be women, according to the Direct Selling Association. And I think that's important to talk about here. LuLaRoe is ostensibly a woman-run company that emphasizes family, right? Though women of all backgrounds enter the MLM industry, there's one clear demographic that these companies target heavily, and that's stay-at-home moms. Because... Once again, the dream is to work at home, spend time with your kids, name your own hours, and of course, make tons of money. 
It's no coincidence that most of the MLMs out there sell products that appeal to women. Candles, oils, home goods, makeup, leggings. That's because the idea is to entice customers in with the product, then convert them to sellers with the promise of free products and this like dream life. I mean, imagine being able to sell something you love and make a fortune off of it. Sounds kind of rad. Furthermore, and this part of it made me sad, being a stay-at-home mom can be really lonely, but these MLMs offer a huge group of instant new friends here to support you and your dreams. And since most of these MLMs rely on social media and parties to sell stuff, it's a great way to, you know, interact with some other people who aren't your kids. MLMs offer the promise of a business and a career without experience or education. You don't need to know anything about business because they're just going to set you up to succeed, right? Rural women with lower socioeconomic status are prime recruits for MLMs. And studies have also indicated that MLMs really like to prey upon military wives because they're often uprooted regularly. They feel somewhat isolated socially because of that. They have sacrificed their own career goals for their families, and they have a larger network of social media contacts from all that moving around. For similar reasons, some MLMs have focused on recruiting church members because they also have large social circles and the women tend to be stay-at-home moms. I've already touched on this and I'll go into it more in the next episode, but we're already starting to see here that most sellers are not going to make $80,000 a year. And in many cases, they'll just give up early on, all while being stuck with a bunch of candles, oils, or leggings. In fact, this is probably one reason I see so many Lululemon leggings at the thrift store, because these sellers that quit might not seem like a good revenue driver for Lululemon or any other MLM, but they're actually great because they're kind of like pure profit. They pay money to buy product, but then they aren't competitors for sales because they quit. So another person can easily be recruited to the replace them while not cannibalizing anybody else's sales. And once a seller quits, LuLaRoe just kept that $5,000 that they charged for that startup kit. And I call this out because, well, it doesn't seem very empowering or feminist or even pro-family to lure in women to exploit their loneliness or financial situation just to turn a quick buck off of them, to sell them a false bill of dreams in exchange for $5,000. It just doesn't seem very pro-family to take $5,000 from a family that might be barely hanging on financially in the first place. And there are some crazy stories of financial and emotional devastation that all started with a pair of wildly printed leggings. Trust me, this ride is just getting started. And I'll be back on Sunday with the second half of the story. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Wars. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. You knew I was going to say that. And please share with a friend. Tell your mom. Okay, I know some of you do that already. <laughs> Tell your sisters, cousins, coworkers. Let's open more eyes to see how dumb slash nefarious the retail and fashion industries are. Gotta tell everyone. 
Thank you to everyone who shared our content, recommended us on Instagram. I love seeing your shares. I say it every time. I mean it every time. I love your encouragement, your suggestions, and I get really excited when one of you has a question for me. By the way, I said this in the last episode. I'm going to continue saying this. If you ever want me to share a source for statistics that I provide here or on Instagram, get in touch. I have a huge bookmark folder and I'm stockpiling information. You know, I'm not a journalist, but I'm really committed to providing you with true and accurate information. So I'm always vetting my sources. Also, if you're working on a paper, this could be a good jump off for you too. Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Close Horse? Well, drop me a line at closehorsepodcast at gmail.com or like a lot of people, you can DM via Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And don't forget, there's the Close Horse Hotline. The phone number is 717-925-7417. Give me a call. Even if you just want to say hi or tell me something random, if you know someone who was involved in an MLM or maybe you've just bought something yourself, I want to hear your stories. I find this world so fascinating. So give me a call. Tell me all about it. And don't forget to check out The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, our obsessions. This week, we're talking all about FOMO, JOMO, and sustainably making your home a cozy quarantine nest. Hear all about my adventures buying used furniture in the past couple months. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.